The New Disruptors is sponsored this week by Zip Recruiter. Welcome to The New Disruptors, a podcast about invention and reinvention in search of audiences and communities. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. The New Disruptors has a new home on the web at newdisrupt.org, where you can subscribe to our podcast feed, leave feedback, and download episodes directly. Sir Mix-a-Lot, a.k.a. Anthony Ray, may have become best known for A Baby Got Back over 20 years ago, but his career spans nearly 30 years, and he's never stopped trying to create a genuine connection with his fans. He's a singer, songwriter, producer, actor, technologist, and a car aficionado. A couple years ago, his Cars with a Z video topped a million views on YouTube. He runs the independent label Rhyme Cartel, and he joins us today. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Anthony. All right, man. How's it going? Excellent. Now, a lot of people, you know, I told, I said, I'm going to be interviewing Sir Mix a lot. I said, you know, his real name's Anthony Ray. And it's interesting, those two identities you have. Which which do you go by in everyday life? Are you Anthony to everybody? Um, I'm Anthony to a lot of people, but some people like mix just because it's less syllables. I that's think. right. That's right. Easier to say. You know, that, that's about it, really. I'm, I, I, I never, um, I'm kind of weird about the whole mix a lot thing. Like, I ran into a fan yesterday, and, and the guy looks at me and goes, what's your name? <laughs> And I said, Anthony. He's like, oh, never mind. You're not him. <laughs> well, you, you know the people. I, I get that a lot. It's like, what am I supposed to say? Mix a lot's my name. They're looking at you for real or for not, which is nice. To, you know, you know what people are thinking. Well, you know, I want to start. You know, we, there's so much talk about what you're working on now. I want to start with this thing we were talking before the podcast that you have to explain. Baby got back all the time, and and we don't have to go into where it came from. It's a great song. It's like I'm the whitest person you will talk to this month. I love this song. I think it's a great celebration of everything. I love the fact there are so many different versions of it. People took it and made their own rendition. I interviewed Jonathan Colton uh, a few months ago about his. So the song itself, it, you know, it's, a, it's an incredible piece of music. But the thing I'm most interested in is a lot of people walk away from their first big success. That was a hit. That was one of the biggest things that ever came out of Seattle. And you still embrace the song. It, this is still your song, isn't it? Oh man, 150%. It cracks me up. You know, you have some artists who work their whole careers to have one song hit and never get it. And then you get guys who have a song that hits and then they actually deny that it's a hit and say, well, I have better stuff. And it's like, you know, I mean, people will call me one hit wonder, but I had, I'd sold 2 million records prior to Baby Got Back. So I don't really have to explain myself. I just, if you want to hear Baby Got Back, cool. If you want to hear Posse on Broadway, cool. You want to hear Beepers, you want to hear My Hoop Tea, whatever you like. I'm just going to give you what you like because I sometimes artists, um, we get a little full, full of ourselves and we start to think that our opinions on politics really matter, things of that sort. And we think we're bigger than the fans. But I think um, this new business model, what we're dealing with right now, has taught a lot of the old school artists a lesson that the fans run this. They actually are, they, they are our bosses. Do you think that got so that's gotten flipped around? You think you think the fans are now they they sort of make the artists more than the artists making the audience? Definitely, definitely. I mean, gone are the days. I, I do these these little panels I sit on all the time, and everybody, well, not everybody, but there's still a lot of people that actually believe um, that some artists can just you know shove a million dollars up in the air and and create a star. It just doesn't work anymore. Um, now every artist is a walking talking brand, and um, the reason, I mean, social media has changed the way we sell music. As a matter of fact, we almost don't sell music. We use music as a as an advertisement almost, and then we go out and do something else to make the money. 
Um, but the fans ran it now, and there's nothing you can really do about it. It's never going to go back, I don't think. You know, talking about something incredibly contemporary is, you know, Macklemore and Lewis are probably one of the most popular acts come out of Seattle since you. I mean, there's, you know, we've had, there's a grunge, there's a bunch of stuff in the middle, but these guys are huge. And uh, when we're recording this, they just won a VMA, a bunch of VMA awards the night before. Um, it seems to me like they are beneficiaries of this new kind of audience, aren't they? Like they got, th- their song didn't rise to prominence. I know they did pay for some promotion, whatever, but we're past that era. Didn't, didn't they tap into something and then that made them into into the size of act they are oh i mean those guys i always use them as the prime example for a young artist to look at not me not <laughs> jay-z not whitney houston or michael jackson or any of these mega stars that those days are over mm-hmm. uh, those guys I, I i got to sit i got to work with something uh, work on something with ryan lewis uh, a couple of weeks ago and I, I can't announce what that is but you'll know in about a week or two, but uh, I, I was amazed. That kid is a genius. I mean, he owns two red cameras. He 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 writes his, he writes the videos, writes the treatments. He shoots the videos. He edits the videos. I mean, that's that's the new model, and that's what these kids should look at. I mean, um, it's a little frustrating because gone are the days when an artist could just sit there and focus on being an artist. But I don't think that diminishes the art. I thought it would. I thought the cream would no longer rise, but. Um, I was wrong. So the audience are actually, I mean, that's that market hand thing, right? invisible hand of the market. And you wonder, like, sometimes it's like the least lowest common denominator and it's the worst stuff. But you sound pretty positive. You think that the audience is reaching out and grabbing for some of the best stuff out there, too. Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. Crap sold before. <laughs> yes. Crap's going to sell now. Yeah. But but the cream still rises. And, and like I said, I initially thought, no way, no way, no way. Um, it, we're just going to have a bunch of watered down, but that's, that did not happen. I mean, fans know what the fans want. Um, and I love the model. I wish I had a piece of this at my peak because I would have had a ball with it. I would have loved it. But you cracked the code too there too, right? I mean, some this is, this is the, we zoom forward, you know, from like the late eighties and, and early nineties to now it's like, you never gave up working. You never gave up collaborating. You've always been producing. And sometimes the, the, uh, fire strikes, right. And it's something big. Sometimes it's not, but you are a continuous, you've got this continuous relationship with fans that goes back 25, 30 years. And like your cars video, that's got over a million hits on uh, a million views on YouTube. Great thing. I see it referenced all over the place. I know it's 2010, but like crack in 2010, even harder to crack that. So you still figured out how to make this connection. Yeah. I, you know, what's funny is that I, I, when I did cars, it was a dream of mine. Something I always dreamt of doing. Cause I, you know, I'm a Miami vice baby. So I, uh, I said, I always want to, I want to get some real cars, not rented cars, not borrowed cars, not picture cars. I don't want to superimpose them over green screen, none of that crap. <laughs> and I said, and now that I'm um, lucky enough to be part of a huge car club out in Redmond, um, every Saturday we do our little version of Cars and Coffee, or our big version, I should say. It's awesome. I asked those guys to come on and do it. Um, they were all millionaires. So they, didn't, <laughs> they didn't ask for money. They just said, you pay for an airstrip where we can drive 150 miles an hour and we'll show up. And uh that's how it happened. And it was just a dream. But I, you're right. I've never really stopped working. Um, I'm, you know, I, I, do I think I'm going to do what Macklemore's doing? No way. I mean, I, I got to move forward. Um, I'm producing new bands. I got a new band called uh, Aaron Jones in the way a local band here in Seattle. And their first single comes out tomorrow. I'm always doing something, man. I started a tech company called true human interface. And, uh, we're going to see what happens with that. I got some really cool ideas to reconnect, uh, human beings with their music and their art because right now um, working on an ipad is nearly impossible you feel so detached mm-hmm. from what you're 
You can't really, you know, as an engineer, you can't really close your eyes and mix a record anymore. You can't feel it um, because you're looking at some pad you're rubbing around on. So I'm going to. You want some haptics in there, right? You don't want, you don't like the glass as much as you want feedback in what yeah, you're doing. Yeah, you have to have that tactility and, and you have to have LEDs showing you what's going on. And, and especially when you look at the new, the new breed of engineers, the new generation of engineers, some of them have never felt tactility. They don't even know what the word means. <laughs> That's wild. Um, That's right. Some of the DJs, you look at some of the DJs and they have really cool stuff going on, but they have these little tiny boxes with a knob on the top. And, it, and it's just like, I want to offer them something that they could actually uh, reconnect with their art, you know, and that goes for guys editing photos, video, everything. This is such a theme. I keep hearing from everybody I get on the podcast. I'm talking to people doing exciting things now and making that like direct connection. And everybody is talking about the analog part. Everyone's like, let's make uh, talk to a company that has this light sensitive T-shirt die. So you can be, you know, roll stuff on, expose it to light. You've got it. people making things where you can just, um, you know, you can touch stuff again. It's fascinating. That's the same thing because you think of music as not detached. I mean, you think of the instruments and so forth. But the process you're talking about, you want people to get out there and put their hands on on what they're manipulating right and, and you know and also um well said actually and, and also i want to make sure that it's not just a gimmick um and i don't i'm not anti-digital i mean I, I i use pro tools just like the next guy um i use my iphone like crazy but what's happened is i think we went so far in the mobile direction um with gimmicky apps that didn't really do anything i think we forgot about you know, utilitarian tools. We we forgot about it, and uh, we didn't see the importance. And I think now, especially the next generation of kids, probably I'd say about twenty five, twenty six on back, they're not so um, gawky over the iPhone like we were. I mean, we saw it like, whoa, what is this? I can wipe the screen and call somebody. You know, and these kids are like, so what? We've been doing that since we were born. <laughs> um, and and I and it's kind of cool to introduce them to something that's old to me but new to them. It, I've got a six and a nine-year-old, and it is fascinating to look at technology through their eyes because the iPhone has basically always existed in their memory, and it's and it's weird. They'll say something, I'm like, "Oh, okay. Let me explain how a dial phone works. Let me explain how an LP works." Let me, and they're like, "What are you?" And sometimes I'll tell them something, and they start laughing. I'm like, "What?" They're like, "You're making that up." Like, no, I'm not. Like, it's a real thing. I don't, you know, explain how I don't know, like checks used to get deposited and they're like till all they know you take a picture of a check and it goes in the bank i mean all this stuff that reality is taken away from us I'm, I'm so it's i'm so happy that you find that connection that you want to use the best of the digital but you want people to touch stuff that is so great yeah and and, and, and you know and workflow is everything i mean um you know i've seen people go into a DAW, and this is what gave me the idea a friend of mine was uh working with a client pretty heavyweight uh firm and you know they're paying him 500 bucks an hour and i'm waiting on him. we're going to go out to lunch and he's mixing the announcer's voice so the client goes can you give me a little more reverb on the announcer's voice and i felt so sorry for my buddy he had to put on his glasses take his mouse look up go up to the menu drop down one plug-in go to reverbs <laughs> he had 10 reverbs he had to scroll down to that reverb then he's moving these little knobs with the mouse and you could see the guy looking at his watch like oh my god you know so what i did i came home and i created a little uh took a little 19 inch rack panel. I have a CNC machine. So I cut out a little 19 inch aluminum rack panel and I mimicked the reverb that he had on the screen. Um, and then I took a little microcontroller, wrote some code and I sent it down to him with a little USB wire hanging out of the back and he screwed mm -hmm. it into his 19 inch rack and he won't give it back. 
He's like, what? so when do you do the Kickstarter for that? <laughs> uh, I, I'm getting really close. I, I got a, I got an engineering team. I'm going to meet with in uh, Silicon Valley here in a couple of weeks. Oh my God. That's great. So this is the future. It's like, you've got, you, you've got your own CNC, you can manufacture this stuff. You've got, you have everything in your hands. That's, that's astonishing. I mean, I, yeah, I, I see this all the time, but I forget about it. Like it's mostly people coming from like the Silicon, like I forget how much the tools are available to, uh, to like you and me. I mean, I know you've got the technology background. I'm less of an engineer, but that, that you can do that in your house. That's astonishing. And, and you know, it's funny. It's, it's for me, it's, I've always wanted to get my hands dirty when I work on something. I mean, I've been building, uh, amplifiers and huge power supplies since I was 15 years old. So I've always been, I was geek before geek was in. <laughs> um, so I, I think for me, it's, it's, it's about fun first. Um, if it makes, makes a few dollars. Okay. That's great. If it doesn't, okay, that's great. But you have fun doing it, have fun along the way. And um, you know, and I'm, I want to dabble again in the record industry just to get the feel for how it really works now. I mean, I can see it from the outside in, not that I'm on the outside, but you know what I mean. I haven't. Uh... Well, you're not. You're not sucked inside the labels now. You know, I was just talking to um, Jack uh, Conti of um, Pomplamoose recently, and uh, you know, there and that's a man. That's a fascinating thing that that um, he and and uh, Don did is that they cracked the YouTube code to become like recording and touring artists, but they did it with covers. And I'm sort of like they saw that covers were becoming big on YouTube, but they brought this sort of unique sensibility to it. And then now they have this whole career. They have solo careers now. Um, it's been interesting to watch how they did it. it happened so fast too. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing to watch some of this stuff, the way it just, I mean, as much as it was kind of gimmicky, I, I, I couldn't believe the explosion with the Gangnam style. So mm -hmm. like, my God, I mean, I don't think that could have happened in my era. I mean, yes, they could, they could take a star and make them, but they could force feed you music until you started to like it. But when you watch it happen organically at such a rate that, I mean, there's no label in the world that could have made something like that blow up like that. It's impossible. It's out of control. And then people, the remixing thing too. You know, I wanted to back up a second too, because, you know, you come out of this tradition, the music you made, when you were first making it, it was, you know, rejected. It was like, a, it was like a African-American culture and the mainstream. It's, uh, you know, one of the funniest things I've ever seen in my life is watch the original Dragnet movie with Jack Webb. And there's this bit where he goes into a bar with his partner and there's these guys playing the world's most inoffensive jazz music on stage. And the two of them look at each other like, these guys are out of their minds. And I'm like, oh my God, every generation, like I'm thinking of these guys just playing, you know, doom, doom, doom. And, and Jack Webb looking at that as the most bohemian, like out there thing. So, you know, every generation does this, it rejects the music. But so you come from, from the origins of rap and then slowly, 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 it becomes it's now hip hop is like the global style. It's America. It's global. It's totally embraced. It's completely accepted. What is it like to watch that transition happen from the inside? Well, you know, it's, oh, there goes the dog. I told you. <laughs> but you can but, tell it's we're recording live. See, it's real. Yeah, yeah, it's real, hundred um, percent. You know, it was pretty interesting because I remember some major, major steps that happened along the way. One in particular, I never will forget. We were, we were number one in the country. Um, we were having a meeting with, uh, our, our publishing company that time it was at that time it was Polygram. Mm -hmm. And, uh, what was interesting is that they were talking about how my song was pulled from MTV. And I'm like, wait a minute, you know, I was number one. <laughs> <laughs> and you, you talk about yo-yo. I mean, this was like, I, I couldn't believe it. it was like, I thought my career was over. So I went from being not accepted rejected by all the radio stations because I was talking about something that was taboo. Right. 
which was curvy women, you know, and, and which is really strange. Mm-hmm. And Dolly Parton was popular before <laughs> I thought a baby got back. Um, I went from that to being accepted, getting used to it, you know, kind of used to, used to drinking the company breast milk. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, by the way, the company you fell in love with, they just ban your video. <sighs> but why I'm talking about within 15 minutes of that happening, Rick Rubin had the publicist that we were working with then. Her name was Heidi, Heidi Robinson, called me and go, this is awesome. Yeah. I'm like, what? <laughs> I just got, I just got kicked off of MTV. Yes, but now you're the forbidden fruit. Now you're Elvis and your leg is wiggling, right? So it was just amazing to watch the way the companies were nimble enough to, when I was on the outside, to get me on the inside. And then when I got kicked out, to make it seem like they were the man against me and rally more fans around me. It was really interesting to watch. I mean, so I I had a weird view uh, of it. And while simultaneously watching rap kind of, evolve and all of a sudden baby got back went from being the forbidden fruit to not not only the norm but actually a pop accepted kind of a you know it's that you play it at weddings now let's take a break to talk about zip recruiter one of our sponsors i've been an entrepreneur for over two decades and it's always been hard to find the right people to hire with so many job boards out there how can you know which one will produce the best talent realistically to fill the position fast and with the perfect candidate You need to post your job on all the top job sites. And now you can do it with this week's sponsor, ZipRecruiter.com. ZipRecruiter lets you post to more than 40 job sites at once. ZipRecruiter also posts your job on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. Just post once and you watch the qualified candidates roll into ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use interface. You can screen applicants, rate them, hire the right people fast. And right now, for you, dear listeners, you can try ZipRecruiter.com for free and find out why it's been used by over 100,000 businesses. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash ND. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash ND, like New Disruptors, or click on the banner at NewDisrupt.org. Give them a try for the next position for which you're hiring, and you'll see how you can get the best of all the job boards with just a few clicks. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash ND. And now back to the show. It, it cracks me up too because, I mean, you know, I've talked to many women and men about the song, especially when the, when the Glee thing happened uh, with, with Jonathan Colton's version. Like that, it became, it, you know, happened in the discourse again. People talked about the song again. And, you know, I always heard it. I was, I was raised a feminist. I'm a feminist. I heard it and I always thought this is a celebration of diversity of women. And I've never been able to understand I guess there's too much in the culture that's opposed to women, but I never understand hearing it and only hearing it as um, as a negative thing about women. It's always seemed to me like you were celebrating a kind of woman who wasn't celebrated. Well, it's interesting you bring that up. Um, what I remember about the song being banned, um, they said it was really offensive to women. So I started asking women everywhere. Mm-hmm. I mean, not Mix-A-Lot fans. I mean, just women that that heard the song, didn't know who I was, but heard the song. They were not offended. It was men trying to tell women what they should and shouldn't mm-hmm. listen to. To me, that's far more condescending than my song could have ever been. There's a big black-white divide there too, right? I mean, there's a white stereotype for what women should look like. And it, when you talk about black women, black women may have a different body type fundamentally, right? There is, and it's it's a different acceptance in black culture. So it's white culture saying, seemed to me saying, no, this isn't acceptable to talk about because we don't talk about that kind of body form. Like that's outside of us. Well, I, you know I guess that that's one way of looking at it, but I don't I don't necessarily I wouldn't say it was white culture on, as a whole. I mm-hmm. think it was the quote unquote establishment. 
Cosmopolitan magazine, you know, stuff like that, where they way thin heroin addicts is what they consider the norm. <laughs> and Baby Got Back was about real women, you know, real women. And I got tired of watching beautiful women with Coke bottled bodies wearing sweaters around their waist because they thought a round butt was bad. Mm-hmm. And that's what I, that's really what the song was all about. It was a knee-jerk response to the establishment. At the time, Budweiser was running the Spud McKenzie girls when I did that song. And I said, I'm sick of looking at this because this is unrealistic. No no man wants a woman who looks like a heroin addict. I've never met a man that would like that. They like the curves. And when I say baby got back, I'm not talking about people who's fat like me. I'm talking about girls who have those nice hourglass figures, the Jennifer Lopez's um, and people, uh, the Beyonce's, people like that. That was what I was talking about. And it was amazing to watch the establishment, um, the supermodel establishment, fight it. It almost was fun um, because I realized that I was banned because of them. I wasn't banned because of the women. And that made me feel good. You did a response to that years later, too, didn't you? You did sort of the male version of it so they could uh, – you have like the, the counter on it? <laughs> yeah, I did a song called Big Johnson as a joke. <laughs> and uh, that didn't work too well. <laughs> it's, right, men, I don't think men need that affirmation. Maybe that's the thing. But so the the thing I think about when I look back at, at what you've done and what you're doing is that you've always stayed uh, really genuine. You've got a place. Seattle is your place. And a lot of people like to forget where they came from. They like to, you know, um, I've kind of, I won't tell you which performing artist. I have a friend who grew up in Oregon, in a small town in Oregon, and I see her angry music uh, that she does, and I actually like her music a lot, but I know where she grew up. I know her very middle-class suburban life, and I'm like, where did all that anger come from? It feels genuine, but it's not exactly where she's from. You've always been a Seattle guy. You came from here. Your music seems really rooted here. You've always stayed, right? I mean, you went away, but this this is your home. Oh yeah, no, I've never, I've never lived anywhere but Seattle. I mean, yeah, when I did the, I did a TV show, I had to stay in Vegas a while, and a lot of LA business, a lot of touring, but never had a residence anywhere outside of the Northwest. Um, I, in hip hop, it's really interesting. Um, the term "keep it real" is loosely used. I mean, it's really mm-hmm. "keep it real" to me does not mean gangster. "Keep it real" does not mean how many people can I shoot before the third verse is over. "Keep it real" is be who you are. Period. If you if you did have a mom and dad and you did go to college, don't be ashamed of it. Keep it real. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's always been my thing. I mean, I I grew up um, on 19th and Yesler. I saw a lot of pimping, prostitution, but I never sold dope. You know, I never smoked weed. I never took a drink in my life. So I don't lie about it. I just mm-hmm. talk about what I did see. I knew a, I know a lot about the pimp game because I was around it. But I never shot anybody. So I don't do songs about shooting people. You know what I mean? Um, I'm, no, I don't. Uh, I mean, I have a lot of guns, but I don't run around lying saying I go hunting for geese when I really don't. <laughs> it's, just, it's for home, home protection and I don't lie about it. So I think what you have is that you have a lot of people trying to um, either fit some political thing or trying to look anti-system and they end up coming off really, really phony in doing so. And in this era, with the social media being what it is, that's not a good move because you will get discovered quick. People can sniff it out. They know when you're trying to pretend to... I mean, that's not always act natural, right? It's like, how do you act natural? You can only be yourself. Thank you. Well, well said. Well said. Uh, it's, and the, you know, it's funny. Uh, I've lived in Seattle, I say, only 20 years. I didn't, I didn't grow up here. And uh, 
that street corner you're describing, like it, Seattle's gone through this crazy transformation where it's, I mean, Portland even more so. Portland used to be a scary city. I grew up in Eugene. We'd go to Portland. It would be like, you know, oh my God, I got, you know, I'm, I think I'm going to be killed here. And Seattle was always a little better, but you know, 19th and Yesler, like how many condos are there now? Like it's, you know, the, 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 the parts of Seattle used to be dangerous or run down or sort of neglected are now like the uh, Belltown, which was uh, the home of grunge. I mean, they used to be the home of grunge is now this incredibly nice place. Georgetown, like Seattle's grown up because of technology and music and uh, culture. Like we've changed. We're like a, we're like almost a big city now. <laughs> it feels like not yeah, a small Seattle, town anymore. Yeah. Seattle's a big city in denial. I've always said that they, they want to be a town, <laughs> but Seattle's a big city. Oh, that's so perfect though. Get over it, man. It's like you're in denial about this stuff, but the biggest small weird. town in the world is what I always felt. It's like little villages and we pretend we're not, you know, we're not big enough to actually run like a city. Right. Yeah. We, we want to call ourselves a town, but we're huge. We're a hustling metropolis. We got oodles of money up here and we're all it cracks me out when i meet like wealthy people here mm-hmm. how they try to wear some birkenstocks and act like they're not wealthy <laughs> gotta blend in funny no one yeah, trying to blend in and go hang out at a starbucks and use a lot of acronyms and talk technology and stuff like that but you know seattle is what it is i, I was on oddly enough i was on yesler yesterday and the only thing still left from my childhood there is the projects that I grew up in. It was Bryant Manor Apartments are still there. But you're right. Everywhere else, there were condos. I go up on 23rd and drive out Rainier eventually, and it's just – it's beautiful. Oh, I mean, it's, I, it's I, I, nice. One, one of my kids goes to school down south there, and it's like – it's it's lovely. Love, and it's like, you know, this is Seattle's problem as always. We've been so – we're a homogenous place, right? It's very homogenous, and there's pockets of like other cultures, Ethiopian or Vietnamese or whatever. And it's like Seattle sometimes embraces, sometimes rejects it. And I feel like we're sorta over time we've gotten to a point where we're embracing it more. The whole city is embracing more, and so. But I don't know. I mean, there's a you know there's incredible history of racism, as you well know, in Seattle. That oh, people, yeah. it's that racism of the north that hides that people don't see because they're like, wait a minute, you know, there's no. They don't have the lunch counters here. It's like, well, it kind of did once. You know, we didn't have restrict. Well, it kind of did have restrictions and redlining for living. Like this isn't, you know, you know better than anybody. This is not a. This is a city that has a racist past. Doesn't always want to address it, and those things still come out. We had the busing for years. Like, yep. we're still seeing it. Yeah, I, I was a child of busing. I was bused. Uh, kind of weird. I, I'm one of few people that would say this, but actually, busing may have been the best thing that ever happened to me mm-hmm. as, as a child because. The one thing I, I had going for me in this right out of the gate is that I knew how to deal with other cultures. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I mean, I understood it. I, I didn't have to go, wow, white guys actually do that. I didn't have to do those things. Uh, once I got out of school, I was ready to roll. Mm-hmm. And um, that is probably uh, one benefit of busing. Um, getting up at five o'clock in the morning, not so good. Oh, man. It's well, it's still, you know, we still have that too. Where the school my son goes to, it's got a, a few different programs in it, and there's like I think 50 different languages spoken there. And I am so delighted in Seattle. He can be somewhere and see people at every socioeconomic, every like you know number of years from having immigrated to the country. People well established, been in Seattle for you know a hundred years. It's like he gets the impression this is the thing. I'm I don't want to I don't want to praise my own children, but they don't seem to understand the notion that differences are bad. And I'm like, I don't feel like 
you know, that's not me and my wife alone. We try. But it's like they see so many different people that they don't look at themselves and think, well, we're, you know, white. We're the reference. They see themselves in this spectrum of, of color, ability. And I'm like, okay, yeah. can we – how long can we preserve this? Is this the new thing? Can they be a culture in which that's just – there's not a default but like everybody they perceive as being like some relationship to each other? I don't know. I hope. But, you know, and I, I, I was – it's kind of weird. We were – driving around yesterday because Sundays are my days with my mom and we went on a drive and it's very interesting. You're, you're, you're dead on the money there. My mom is 84. Mm -hmm. Um, so she sees stuff and you know, she'll go, look at there. Like, what are you looking at? Mom? <laughs> look at that. That's a white guy with a black girl. Uh -huh, uh -huh. I'm like, yeah, well, you just didn't see that before. <laughs> I mean, it, and it's beautiful because she's not saying it like she's disgusted. She's smiling. She's like, wow, I can't believe this. Where are we at again? Um, and my mom, you know, was been in Seattle since she was 15. So we definitely, I, the kind of racism that still persists in this town is kind of a, it's not really racism. It's people do kind of still stereotype. And I don't think mm -hmm. this is race-based. I think it's just, example, I, I go into, I went to an unveiling of a, of a car, a high-end car the other day. And you know, people there knew what I did and they were like, cool, blah, 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 blah. So we started discussing um, technology mm -hmm. and we started to discuss, you know, you know, where everybody came from. What did you do? What did you do? What did you, somebody got to me and I started describing what I used to do as far as dabbling around, you know, with components and building stuff. And one guy went, Hmm, I would have never figured, uh, right. you know, and it's in it. And I realized my old, the old me would have said he's racist, but no, you know what? It wasn't race. I had to use, I had to put, take all the parameters and go, okay, wait a minute. It's not just me being black, but I'm a rap artist who happened to do a song about butts. <laughs> you know, so you, sometimes I think um, we maybe, our knee-jerk reaction is to blame race. Sometimes it's just ignorance, period. Ignorance is a powerful force too, but you can teach people. Racism is harder because you have to retrain them. Yes, you do. And, and, and racism is really, it's, it's kind of interesting that I went to see um, the butler the other night. Yeah. And I can tell you, man, I, I remember uh, kind of watching that movie brought back one memory that I would never forget. We were at my grandmother's house. I was 14 years old. And there was a guy that used to mow the lawn who was uh, outside mowing the lawn. I'm sitting on the porch with my dad. And um, I never will forget this. Uh, there was a white girl that had a paper route. And, you know, her mom would pull up and she'd get out, throw the paper every day. You mm -hmm. know, she got out. Well, Elise was in the yard and this girl, little girl had to be, you know, 13. The little girl gets out of the car and Elise, I never will forget it. He took off his hat and he put his head down. Oh, wow. And I'm like, what the hell? And I'm a kid and I'm, I'm like, dad, wow. what happened? And, you know, when it was all over, my dad kind of pulled me to the side and explained kind of where he came from in the South. He was from Monroe, Louisiana. Mm -hmm. um, he was born in like 1914. And that was what you did when a white person was in your presence. And it just, seeing that movie kind of reminded me of how much people had to go through to get us to where we're at now. I, you can't, especially as an African-American, you really can't forget that, which is the reason I stopped using the N-word, period. I won't use it at all because- mm -hmm. You may use it as slang, but you don't realize the message you're sending, especially to the next generation of white kids who are thinking, oh, well, that word is cool now, you know? So we, we got to, we as rap artists got to be careful. I'm not telling every rapper to stop doing it. I'm just saying that's what I decided to do. It's eventually what's going to be interesting is when it has no 
meaning to people at all. And that's, I mean, that's the day you hope for is when people are like, eh. like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm Jewish. And if I don't think, I don't know if anyone's ever called me like a Jewish, you know, insult maybe once in my life. But so I, you know, I know that's a privilege, right? But I also, because of what my dad was, there were restricted clubs when my dad was growing up and he couldn't go into because he was Jewish and think about my grandparents and, and beyond that. But and I know that's, you know, we're, we've had a better time of it, right? But the, the thing is, like, someone could call me any of the many, many terms, anti-Semitic terms, and I'd be like, whatever, it doesn't burn, you know? And you've got to hope maybe someday, N-word, other words, just they don't burn anymore. They don't mean people say, okay, you can say that, but I don't, you don't go run crying. You don't feel destroyed inside because someone used it. They don't have any power over you anymore. That's the, that would be the dream. I mean, that's, you know, hey, we were just talking about this like 50, the few days after 50th anniversary of the I have a dream speech. And like the dream is that people forget those words have power and they can't use them anymore because they don't right. have power. Yeah, they don't. And, and, and one thing we have to do, we as African-Americans, some of us, we have to quit perpetuating the stereotypes. I mean, I realize it's kind of not fair because the, the, the kind of racism that still exists now, and I notice it a lot on the Internet when dealing with the Trayvon Martin thing and dealing mm. with the, the gentleman that was just killed in Spokane by the three morons. I've noticed that when we as a nation discuss white people, we start with the highest example. Mm -hmm. When we discuss black people, we start at the lowest common denominator, either um, a homeless person, a drug addict, a drug dealer, a gangster. We don't start with Michelle Obama. We don't start, you know, we don't start with Oprah Winfrey. It's really interesting. They seem to be the, the uh, abnormal example, but they're the abnormal example in any race. Yeah, yeah. And that's what they're jerks in every race. And I, sometimes I, my dad used to always tell me it was it was a cold way of saying way of saying it, but it was true. He said, "When these old farts get out of the way and die off, you have a better world." <laughs> he used to always say that. This is true. Well, I'll circle back to what we we're talking about before. Is like you know you started in a musical genre that was like that was marginalized and 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 pushed back against. You had song you know banned off MTV, and then that turned into a strength. So so much culture and you know music culture has been embraced like from lots of you know lots of different communities i think like you know rap and hip hop especially but other communities so american music i read this amazing thing i have to write more about this but the the two women who wrote the song that happy birthday was based on you know there's that whole crazy copyright thing about that um they were childhood educators and one of them wrote under a pseudonym in the late 1800s she, because she couldn't get published as a woman. Her father was incredibly progressive, so they'd all gone to grad school in the 1800s. These women were doing revolutionary childhood education work. And this will make sense in a minute. I swear to God, there's a point here. <laughs> and, uh, uh, so Mildred Hill, she wrote this essay in the late 1800s saying she was a, a student of African music. And she said this will eventually evolve to become the dominant American sound of music because it's truly American. It's, it's come here mixed together with so many traditions. This will be the future. She wrote this like 1890. And you're like, well, yeah, that's what happened. But we still – there's that tension between maybe – Accepting the culture and accepting the people that I think is still there. And so, you know, you're inside this genre that like is now fully accepted. Does that change things for you when you're in that space where people just love the music and people almost generally, you know, everybody up to 50, right, is going to accept the music? Yeah. And, you know, the interesting thing about hip hop is that when it started, you're right, it was buck the system. Mm -hmm. Um, it It was us against them. All of a sudden they became us. (laughs) Um, and, and we, I don't think anybody assimilated. Everybody thought, you know, yeah, they always make the example. They'll find a white kid that talks with hip hop slang and they'll say, well, he assimilated. Well, you could find that on either side. Right. But for the most part, 
the kids I see that listen to hip hop, white kids I see, and I live out here in Auburn, mm-hmm. they're just white kids that listen to hip hop. And they also listen to Metallica and they also listen to Nirvana and they also listen to, you know, uh, anybody, anybody that's out right now. I mean, they still, they listen to a little bit of everything. I don't, I don't know anybody with an iPod, iPhone, iPad, whatever it is that actually only has one genre anymore on their, on their phone. Was oh, that the Spotify Pandora thing? Do you think people listen to more kinds of music because they can easily listen to more kinds of music? Yes. Uh, yes. And I give you, here's a perfect example. My girlfriend's son is 21 years old um, and he's, he's getting into music heavy. And what he did, it's kind of weird. We were talking about rock and roll and where it was born. And I kind of gave him a loose idea of basically if you take, you know, the church, and the Baptist kind of a rockin' church music of the black church that evolved into Boogie Woogie. Boogie Woogie evolved mm-hmm. into rock and roll. Well, in blues, Boogie Woogie and blues evolved into rock and roll. And here we are. Mm-hmm. I just threw it out there. I talked to him last night. And this, this discussion we had was a month ago. I talked to him last night. He had researched Elvis Presley Hound Dog and realized that the original version was by Big Mama Thornton. <laughs> All these things that it took me till I was 30 years old to find out. He found out in a month. It was just incredible to listen to. And he had videos of Little Richard talking about the birth of rock and roll, where it came from, Ray Charles, how basically Ray Charles' sound was was kind of ostracized in the Black community because he basically took what was going on in the church and created this new genre, this kind of boogie-woogie, almost rock and roll feel. And that was, you know, you're not supposed to do that. You're not supposed to take, you know, gospel music and go that route. So... This kid had researched all of that in less than three weeks. It, it just blew my mind that how much is available to kids now. And if it weren't for YouTube um, and it weren't for SoundCloud and all that, I probably would be working at Burger King right now. Oh, that's interesting. So you think the fact that they have all the history of it, they can go back and discover you again and again and again. That keeps- oh, exactly. exactly. I mean, kids now are listening. I tell you what, you can take one of your kids' iPods right now and look in it, and you're going to see stuff. You're like, how do you know this song? <laughs> you know, it's it's amazing. It's ama- I was listening the other day. I was washing my car, and I was listening to Royce upstairs playing music. And he was playing uh, the Ohio Players' Fire. And I'm like, how in the hell did he know that mm-hmm. song? 1976? You know, he wasn't even he wasn't even an idea. <laughs> and it just it's it's beautiful. I love that. I think that's the coolest thing about technology, actually. There's this amazing thing happening too, is like reaching back even further. There's a group called um Dust to Digital that does um they do seventy eight reproduction and they're they spent they just uh, well they were Grammy nominated. I don't know if they won. They did this a multi year project with this guy who found all these seventy eights from Africa that have been sitting around. Some not played for a hundred years. And he's a student of this. And they put together this incredibly huge collection of music from God. I think it's from like nineteen hundred to nineteen seventy, and it is the most amazing thing. And it's, now it's recovered, like it's no longer locked up in those discs. Wow. Anybody can get access to it. And well, that's that, funny. I uh, I got a. I just got a Royce just brought a big crate of 78s home and they're like uh he has um I forget the lady's name there was a a female singer that did something about zodiac signs mm. and she did all 12 signs or whatever and she recorded one record a month and we he got the whole collection of that um he has autographed copies of Tommy Dorsey records I mean I don't Ooh. know where he got this stuff how 
It's, and I, I said, dude, you might get rich just going on eBay with this. <laughs> well, and, and you know better than anybody about this issue. It's like every time I talk to a musician, we wind up cost, cost, uh, talking about um, compulsory mechanical rights because that is a fascinating thing if you're not in the music world. And I, I wound up doing a lot of research a few years ago about the issues of like what copyright and the phonogram right that attaches to music. So those 78s, like that music is locked up unless you can find – you know, the rights holder from, if it's from even before 1922, like Sony, Sony owns all the Victor stuff. They still have the copyright. They don't own the composition, right? I mean, that's compulsory rights. They own the recordings and, and it's still gonna be protected until I think 2070 music from like 1900 on, on disc. It's not. Yeah. It's incredible. I mean, some of the old deals, I mean, even my deal, um, the, the, the length of the master term is just insane. I think mine is, Coming up here pretty soon. I think it's 25 years. And Do you get the right of rescission then? Can you reclaim? Or no, is that later? There's, I know there's a right like musicians can take back the copyright after a certain period of time. The music industry is freaking out because if there's a reform in the audio copyright or the, I guess the phonogram right, then musicians from like the 70s and 80s could potentially, maybe 60s, could claim their copyright back from the well, labels. Yeah, and see, here's the thing is that the the publishing companies are starting to lose a couple coins. Although I mm-hmm. I like having a publishing deal because, quite frankly, I have trouble collecting. If I call up, hey, I'm yeah. Anthony Ray in Seattle, give me my money. They're like, yeah, right. Yeah. But when Universal calls, uh oh, you know. But that being said, when you deal with Master, and that's what I'm dealing with now, my Master rights, if I'm not mistaken, come up in a couple of years. I could probably let those rights revert back to me. Yeah. Or, and this is the beauty, is that an artist could take. Those masters, and I have a bunch of them um, under Rick Rubin. I could take them from Rick Rubin and and let give them to the highest bidder and do short term deals, mm-hmm. two year, four year, five year deals, as opposed to these massive twenty and thirty year deals. I mean, my my publishing deal was twenty years, but I just signed a new deal in two thousand eleven. It's only four years. Oh, that's nice. well. You know, what? I was I talked to the fellow who did the uh, you know that cartoon, The New Yorker, uh, on the on the internet. Nobody knows you're a dog. Um, He's made $200,000 in licensing that cartoon over 20 years. And it's, it's like his retirement. I mean, it's, if it hadn't been for that, any cartooning, you know, it's hard to make a living in any creative endeavor. Cartooning is a pretty hard one, even with somebody who was doing for the New Yorker. And I think about like baby got back. I mean, I know that's not your retirement per se, but I mean, the fact that you can continue to have benefit from that from your early albums all the way up through now, that seems to me like an incredible benefit of the digital age when you're talking about, you know, the fact that anyone can access any music means that long tail is now much fatter. <laughs> the, the, the long tail used to be really skinny and now it's pretty fat. So I got to think that has to help you today that you have this catalog. Uh, yeah, I've been able to, I mean, I've probably grossed more money on baby got back after my peak than I did during. It's really interesting. I mean, I've, because back then um, rap in a, in a, in a major ad campaign just didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you know, I've done stuff with, with, uh, Target. Um, I've done stuff with, uh, the Nestle Corporation with Butterfinger, with, uh, Procter and Gamble with Charmin. Um, it just goes on and on and on car companies, thing, all kinds of stuff. And it's, it's beautiful that, that, that can continue to happen. So it, it boggles my mind when I hear artists, older artists complain about today's market. I think Prince, although I'm a big Prince fan, 
But I think Prince needs to really wake up and understand that you're not bigger than the internet, bro. And I know he was quoted as saying that it's a fad. No, the internet's not a fad. <laughs> I think we're past the, past that point. But yeah, it's, I think that's the uh, gosh, that was the the promise of the internet was having the entire history of everything at your fingertips all the time. But now it seems you know the movie studios finally kind of got on board of all the TV shows, all the music, of every book is, you know, you have to pay for it in different ways. Like, I love the streaming model. I wish the artists got more. You know, I love streaming, but I'm also kind of aware. I'm like, I listen to that, and Anthony just got a penny because I listen to that. But, you know, if a million people listen to it, maybe it turns into real money at some point. But still, there's this kind of imbalance between the audience getting all this access and what you see as an artist. Yeah, the artists are not getting not getting much at all. I mean, there are exceptions to the rule. But you know, my thing is it, you have to deal with the hand you've been dealt, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I said, well, you know what? Instead of complaining that, you know, the old model of, hi, Glenn, here's my record. I'll take 20 bucks. Right. See you later. Instead of dealing with that model, let's say, okay, let me figure something else out. If if you have a million people that love your song but didn't pay for it, the, you still have a million people that are paying attention to your brand, right? So do something with your website, which is what I'm working on now. I'm going to do things with my website. I'm going to create uh, live streaming all my studio sessions. So when I'm working in the studio, people can interact with me. Uh, we can talk back and forth. And what happens eventually is the advertisers are going to see every time this guy's in the studio, mm-hmm. he has 100,000 people uh, conversating back and forth with him. You know, we can monetize this. And they'll come to me and run ads on my website. And I think that is the way artists have to think now because the old model, I mean, you have exceptions, you know, Macklemore being a big one, but for the most part, you have live performances and then squadoosh, nothing. Because yeah, there's, right, because there aren't, there aren't hits, right? I mean, the, the, the platinum, the gold, like the number of records that actually hit those targets now, it's pretty small. It gets smaller and smaller. The, the, so tell me, looks, before we finish, I want to, I know you've got so many irons in the fire. So you've got a technology company you're working with. You've got your own label. You're producing new, new bands. You've got your own music. What, what, t- what's the scope of what you're working on right now? It sounds like a lot. It is a lot. And and you know what? I, I, I was sitting up talking last night with a friend of mine and I told him, I said, you know what? I think I'm doing so much now that nothing's going to be great. It's all going to be mm. mediocre. You know, the old saying, jack of all trades and a master of none. So I, I think I'm going to have to pick a couple of three things and just say, okay, this is going to be it for the next year or the next two years and, and buckle down and try to make something happen. Um, because I'm doing so much stuff now that I'm not finishing any one thing. This is, but you've got, this is the problem when you have so many good things happening, right? Is there's not, this, this isn't negative. It's that you have an abundance of, of possibilities. Everything's open. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I just want to, I got to look at, you know, I think I maybe bring somebody in from the outside, actually. Just say, hey, you know what? Here's what I'm doing. You see me, you know me. What do you think? I, I'd love to get some other opinions because sometimes when you're too close to something, you'll do it wrong. There's so many, but yeah, so, I mean, this is, uh, look, and I'll say, I'll say this, honestly, it's like when you have this much talent, you clearly have, you've got the artistic talent, you've got the engineering interest, and you know how to make things click for people. So people hear them, they go, yeah, that's it. And whether it's a song or whether it's an idea, and um, when you're in that position, how do you know, obviously making a choice is hard because you could go, you know, you could start the next Microsoft if you want, or you can start, <laughs> you know, or the next the next Universal, like right now, because everything's fresh, right? Everything, you can reach everybody in the world. And if you know how to make those things happen, the memes, the the audience connection, that feels like the root of everything that you've done. 
And it really is. I mean, I, I talked to, uh, I went down to WSGR and we were talking about my tech idea and their big, big law firm in, in Silicon Valley. And that was the first thing they said. They said, you know, any of these ideas without you in front of it is a waste of our time. Um, and, and, you know, I got the point and, and you're right. I got to get out in front of these things. However, my biggest weakness is I, I need to learn how to delegate. <laughs> oh my God. I, I just, I micromanage too much stuff and I'm going to meet right after I get through with you. I'm going out to meet a couple of girls today about merchandising. And I think I'm going to say, okay, you know, I'll, I'll approve of a design. Then I'm going to go to somebody and say, how do I market this thing? And let, let's, let some, let some other people come in and, and make this happen because it's, it's kind of frustrating because I, because I don't know how to delegate, I end up doing, you know, there's not enough time in a day. I sleep four hours, I get up and work 20, you know? There's a, yeah, this is the thing. I, I I think of you, you seem to me like a young man. I think I'm slightly younger than you, than you are, but uh, just a few years, but like you have the energy of somebody who is 20, but at some point, right, you're going to, you're going to hit that wall and say, I got to rest sometime. Yeah. You know, I'm 50 years old, man. I, I feel, I just turned 50 two weeks ago and, I feel like a little kid still, but I know, you know, it ain't forever. And uh, I still want to be able to go to CES every year and have a good time and, you know, get out and travel a little bit. So I got to learn how to delegate. But the first thing I have to do is build a company, uh, make it happen, get it off the ground. Um, I've been offered a, another, I can't talk about it yet, but I've been offered a position with a radio station. But I, I realize that if I do that, I'd have to give up everything I've dreamed All of. All the rest of the time. Yeah, I, I just can't do it. I don't know if I can do it. Well, we're gonna, so we're going to look this this podcast. By the time it airs, I'm going to find you the head of a new technology company, the new album out, new band <laughs> signed, like the new wah-wah pedal reverb unit, and uh, it'll all be on Kickstarter. Yeah, there you go. Anthony Ray, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about what you do. It's really – it's it's uh, I, I always come back to this podcast inspirational in a practical way. Like you're out there doing stuff. You're not talking. You do. And, and thanks for sharing what you do. Right on, man. Anytime. Thank you for calling, man. I'll be at the XOXO Conference and Festival in Portland on September 19th through the 22nd. If you see me, please say hi. The New Disruptors has a new home. Find us at newdisrupt.org. You can find our new podcast feed, leave comments on individual podcasts, or send feedback. We release a new episode every Thursday. Would you like to sponsor this show? We'd be glad to have you. Visit podlexing.com, P-O-D-L-E-X-I-N-G.com for more details. Our theme music is by Jeff Tolbert, who you'll find at jefftolbert.com, and our audio engineer is Michael Warner. Our podcast audio is hosted by SoundCloud. We are a production of The Magazine, an electronic periodical for curious people with a technical bent. Find out more and read free articles at the-magazine.org. This podcast is licensed under the Creative Commons by NCND 3.0 license. Feel free to distribute it intact and with attribution to us by linking back to our site. We only ask you don't offer it for sale. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. Please join us again next time. Thanks for listening.